Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Recoil Live. I'm your host, Tom Marshall, and today I am here with Luke Hartle, the editor of Gun Digest, which if some of you might not know, Gun Digest is a sister publication to ours here at Recoil. Uh, and so we thought it'd be a good idea for us to sit down, uh, shoot the shit, talk about some of the differences in the books, talk about some of what's going on for Gun Digest, and see where we go. So before we get too deep down any rabbit holes, Luke, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into guns? Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And uh, I like to say I'm the uh, Gun Digest myself being of the Gun Digest brand, kind of the yin to the yang of the recoil crowd, right? So uh, the majority of the recoil guys are, you know, you in particular and, and all the other editors, it seems to me came into it, came into guns. I don't know how much of it started before that, but right, military the vet experience is, mm -hmm. is, is a big part of your story, right? Where I don't have that. Um, I certainly appreciate it, obviously, but I don't have that. What, what it means for me is I grew up a, a little redneck kid on a farm, hog farm in Southern Minnesota. So um, chasing pigs around and doing all that with dad. But when that wasn't happening, I was shooting sparrows out of the tree with a BB gun. And later it was, uh, you know, blackbirds in the spring with a shotgun. And then eventually it came deer that were running around the farm with a bow and then deer that were running around the farm with a gun. And it kind of developed naturally like that for me. And uh, oddly enough, uh, I come from a family where dad doesn't hunt. Dad's not really into guns. He's, he's got an old lever action 22 leaning up in the barn for raccoons or anything like that. Right. What is, I mean, it's so rusty, it barely even functions, but that's his experience with guns. And for whatever reason, um, I was bitten with that bug very early on. And again, that kind of came through hunting, but, you know, naturally with the hunting angle comes the fascination with guns and it's just, it's blossomed from there. Yeah. I, I kind of have a theory. Sometimes we don't pick our hobbies. They pick us. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up a stone's throw outside of New York city. So I was also not in a very gun friendly environment, but just managed to kind of have some exposure to it again i, I went the, the military vet route um and for me it's awesome to hear a sort of a more organic experience you know everything that i kind of went through coming up is institutionalized and pretty rigorous at least in the beginning phases of a career like that so um you know that's that's super cool well okay so from there then um how about did you land the job here at gun digest yeah um I started off, let me see if I can keep this from going two hours long, but I started off in college. I thought I wanted to be a mechanical engineer, right? Um, and then I actually had a best friend who was killed in a car accident the first day of my sophomore year in college. And I, I totally just shut down. And I was one of those fortunate guys who uh, I had a counselor who finally got a hold of me and got me into his office after almost a full semester and said, dude, you are going to fail out of college. And this was at the University of Minnesota. Um, you are going to fail out of college if you don't get, you know, everything in line right now. I figure it out or you're done. You're going to figure something else. They're going to boot you out. And so he asked me, he's like, what do you want to do? Because I was taking all of the, the early courses, you know, the calculus and um, what are the economics and chemistry. I had those big three. And then I had a writing course. Um, and he said, what do you want to do with your life? Because what you're doing right now, uh, the track you're on is not working. And I said, tongue in cheek, just being a total smart ass. I said, you know, getting paid to hunt, that'd be pretty cool. And he looked at me just deadpan and said, okay. And at that time I could BS my way through a paper in that writing course. I was getting an A and I wasn't showing up to 95% of the classes in those other courses. I was all but failing out like it completely almost right. So we figured out that my natural, abilities were were the writing and, and as goofy as this sounds I don't know how else to phrase it other than at that time I, I know I was 19 years old I'm like it, I thought it was girly the, the writing route right or in, in English and journalism um, I hadn't explored it enough to really know what that meant um, and so with the help of that uh, um, that professor uh, we got going down a course where all right let's take the skills that I have that I'm strongest in again with the writing the editing and figure out how I can work that into my pie in the sky dream of getting paid to hunt. So I got a degree in journalism and English from the U, uh, University of Minnesota. Um, and then a couple of internships. Grandpa was good to me. I learned how to do woodworking stuff uh, through him. So I started off at American Woodworker, which was a Reader's Digest publication at that point, um, and, and did that whole drill. So I got the internship experience while in college 
And then right after college, within three months, um, deer and deer hunting magazine had a knock or knocked on my door and said, Hey, cause I, cause I had thrown some apps out there, um, and said, Hey, if, if you're interested and still available, you know, apply. And so that's, that's where that got started. So I started working for deer and deer hunting magazine, um, for a handful of years and then, or excuse me, for a handful of months only. And then came uh, North American Hunter, which was, uh, back in Minnesota, bigger publication. It was huge at the time. I, this probably doesn't apply to you. A lot of people out there are going to remember the annoying red books. They had this marketing program where they'd send you the books and you either had to buy them or you had to send them back. I mean, just everybody who was anybody uh, in the hunting world, North American Hunter would grab names from, you know, anybody who bought deer licenses in the upper Midwest, right? And send the books to all those people, right? So you got this endemic crowd um, and they kind of got that reputation but I was on the magazine side of that. So hopped on the editorial staff of the magazine um, that kind of fell apart a few years ago when a bunch of shot, I'm going to say it nicely, a bunch of shiny suits from New York came and essentially bled it dry. And uh, when I started there in 2007, there were 400 people in the building, give or take. And this was 12 different affinity groups, hunting, fishing, golfing, quilting, you name it. Uh, so it went from 425 in 2007 when I left in 2015, it was, it went from 10 to nine, 10 people to nine people. It was brutal. Um, and sad to see it go. It really was. It was, it was a staple in the hunting community. So, uh, I say all that to say from there, um, I, I got a hold of Jim Schlender, who is my, uh, the current publisher for Gun Digest and the hunting side of things, along with my publishing, publishing experience, naturally morphed into the gun side of things they had an opening for an editor and uh yeah that's been five five and a half years now nice so i have to say you were actually the first person i've met on staff that i know of that actually has like a english slash journalism type of of academic background yeah uh, everybody i get that question all the time like oh did you major in journalism or communications and Man, I went to a service academy for college. They did not have those kinds of programs. Uh, my degree is in uh, business logistics, and I just kind of, I guess, I guess you'd have a knack for it. I made plenty of money editing uh, other people's papers, uh, you know, for, for beer money uh, at that time. But, yeah, uh, it's interesting to, from my side to see the number of people who don't go that route. But that's cool. Um, in retrospect, if I could have, kind of reverse engineered winding up where I did that's that's what I would have done if I'd had an option to have a, an English degree or something like that I um I, th I think I would have taken it but that's uh that's super cool man so you you made a comment earlier uh, that that I'm going to come back to you said that uh, in terms of the gun digest recoil dynamic uh that you're the yin to our yang or vice versa which I would absolutely agree with uh so let's talk about from your perspective, where does Gun Digest fit into the firearms industry, the fire, the media portion of the firearms yeah. industry? Where do you guys, where do you feel like, you know, you guys really shine or where you guys sit? Yeah. Well, first off, what I love about our pubs right now, and this is going to sound like a total sales pitch, is not, is that the people we have in the appropriate chairs are just so endemic to the brands they represent, right? And I, that's, how I guess it should go. Um, I would be the odd man out on Rico. Like I said, you guys are a, a lifestyle magazine. Gun Digest being more of a hardware magazine, you know, the nuts and bolts. Um, not that those lines certainly don't get blurred some, um, but much more, I mean, the black guns is a horrible phrase. I hate that, but much more the tactical side. If I can make a very broad statement about the recoil pubs is much more on the tactical side where the gun digest side, we like to focus on uh, what I call the emotional side of the gun, right? Right. We focus on, on the cover. I just ran a model 61 Winchester, um, which is a little 22 pump actions. My first gun, oddly enough, one of our main contributors, uh, Richard Mann, it was his first gun. Uh, and we focus on, how do I say it? We focus on the angle where sometimes the, Ding in the stock is just as important as the stamp on the barrel, meaning the memories you create with that rifle of field, what you shot, who you were with at the range, um, tags you filled are just as important as what the gun actually is, if that makes sense. 
Um, now, that's not to say that we don't cover the new stuff. We obviously do. Um, and, and that's where, like I said, rather than a lifestyle approach, we take a very nuts and bolts approach to, you know, here's what's new. Here's what it is. Here's our expert reviewing it. Here's what he thinks. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for not. But, you know, we know guns. So, you know, guns. That's the, that, that's the model for Gun Digest. So, um, that's what we try to give everybody. So it's, it's a challenge sometimes to be all things to everybody. And I know you guys face this on the recoil side as well, right? You've got all these guns and all these different platforms. How do you funnel that down and actually craft your brand? um, So that things fit kind of neatly into your own little box or get your own little spin on it. So um, I guess if I were to sum it up, because I suppose I'm rambling a little bit, like I said, gun digest is a little more the classical, um, nuts and bolts approach where recoil, I think is a little more tactical lifestyle. Does that, that sound fair? I, I would agree. I would agree. You, uh, you, uh, make a interesting point about the, the emotional side, what I, what I might call the human interest, uh, side yeah. of gun media. Uh, yeah. and I'm going to come back to that in a second because there, there is some overlap uh, a little bit that I, I think, I think we should touch on, but before we get there, uh, you know, let's, how about you, let's talk about what you guys are working on right now. Uh, articles you have coming up, issue yeah. themes, uh, shameless blood time, man. Tell us, tell us what you guys are up to. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take a half step back and I'm going to try not to ramble. And if I do, uh, you know, virtually kick, uh, kick me in the shin, but gun digest started in 1944, right? So there are, uh, what I do words, not math, right? So 80 years of roughly of gun content, gun editors, gun experts that came before me. And continuing that legacy is a very high priority of my day-to-day tasks, right? Or my day-to-day goals, if you will. What had happened for a short time is uh, Gun Digest kind of fell off the radar, right? In in that um, other publications popped up. Um, I don't have all the specifics. Uh, In my mind, it was maybe mismanaged. Uh, for a time there, you know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe even a little before that. And it had, at the bare minimum, it did not evolve, right? It had quickly become your granddaddy's gun magazine. And I think that's a stigma that kind of sticks a little bit today. Um, But I am busting my tail along with, you know, the other digital editors here in the Gun Digest side to make that stigma die because it certainly is not the case. Um, the, gun, the magazine has been completely revamped. Uh, it looks different. We've got new writers. It's, I'm super pleased with where it sits right now. Um, and, and that whole granddaddy's gun magazine is, is well, that concept, if you will, is dead. Now, we still cover uh, a few of granddaddy's guns, of course, but the way it's presented is, is totally different. So um, we're still running 12 issues a year. We've got four, uh, 12 monthly issues a year. We've got four specials. Just kicked out the buyer's guide, which is a topic by topic or category by category approach to um, our expert picks of, of what's hot in the industry right now from CCW, you know, pistols, revolvers, optics, ammunition. We dabble in reloading quite a bit, too. We've still got a reloading column. Um, that's a big part of our audience. So um, that's what just went out the door for me. And then, of course, um, right before that, we had the AR issue. We had a retro issue. And coming up here, the September issue will be hunting. And then our big one right after that is the semi-auto issue. So I know that's a very broad look, um, but that gives you a little bit of an idea of the breadth and depth of topics, right? The, the retro issue and then the AR issue are, are almost back to back. So we go down the rabbit hole and focus on a little bit of everything. But uh at the same time, those those issue themes are diversified to to try to scratch everybody's itch, if that makes sense. It does, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and talking about yin and yang, I'm I'm going to call out a a specific issue uh, on each side. So, man, I want to say it was like got to be almost 18 months ago now. Recoil did a feature on the guns of SEAL Team, the the, <laughs> the TV series, and I know that. Uh, again, in almost a perfect dichotomy, uh, you guys just recently, I think, did Guns of Yellowstone, yes. which uh, as a huge Yellowstone fan, I'll be the first one to say it is soap opera for men. Uh, absolutely. And yes. uh, yeah, it totally yeah. did. So so let's talk about let's talk a little bit about um, 
maybe kind of what went into that that feature. I remember kind of what we did on mm-hmm. the on the SEAL team side for recoil in terms of going over guns and gear and how specific rifles were set up and how that mirrored kind yep. of what actual operators were using. What was what was your guys' approach to uh, the guns of Yellowstone? Yeah, well, what I wanted to do with that piece, um, and those are the fun ones. So we had we did a little bit before this one. We did to your point. Um, the history of the American sniper rifle, those ones that dig in real deep, right? It, it, it's a huge, it's a huge concept, but that's what this was, right? Trying to take all the guns of Yellowstone um, and all the different seasons and throw them into one article is the biggest challenge. So what I wanted to do in true gun digest form was cover the history of those firearms, right? I, it didn't matter to me for this article, whose hand that gun was in, in in the show, right? It didn't matter if Kevin Costner was the one shooting it or Rip or Beth or whomever, it didn't matter. Um, I wanted to take the the most prominent guns in the show were those guns that that were either, you know, had that sex appeal. Um, there's the opening scene, right? Where he's got that, uh, he is in, Kevin Costner has, John Dutton, has that Ruger Red Hawk, Hawk and he puts down the horse like 45 seconds into the show and you're like, okay. You know, it sets the pace. Those guns that kind of, define the plot at various stages and that's what i wanted to focus on take those guns um not get into the characters so much but almost personify the guns and use those as characters here's the gun here's how it was presented in the show and of equal importance here's how it was used throughout history of you know of america if you will so or since the gun's inception however you want to say it some of the guns played a major role um and, and some of them didn't well, like you said, there are just just like any time you have a TV show or movie that's that's got a bunch of firearms in it. Uh, there are some that are there on sex appeal and there are some that are there that are particularly in a, in, in something like Yellowstone, which is a little bit. Um, I guess it's not quite period, but it is certainly regionally themed. Yes. Um, you know, where, where they, there are there are guns in there that are in there because there is historical significance to that region historically yep absolutely absolutely and and so many different variants of the guns both on this show for this article and just in general right it's it's oh i don't don't even know how to describe it it was interesting taking that piece and you know there, there were like i think four maybe five different 1873 Winchester lever guns in there, but because whether they were in the hands of, um, there were a couple of them that showed up in, in the Dutton's hands on Yellowstone, but there were also a few that showed up in the Native American hands on 1883, and those guns did not look anything alike, right? The Native Americans had their own decor system, which just stunning, stunning to what they could do to yeah. a firearm back in those days. So it was really cool. Yeah, f- uh, functional artwork uh, yeah, for absolutely. sure. You know, especially so far removed from that now. So let's switch gears a little bit. You you've mentioned a couple times that, that you're big into hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you recently just came back from a hunt in Hawaii. I did. Which I I have to imagine that Hawaii uh, is not the first state that jumps into people's minds when they think about where am I going to flock to for epic hunts. So, so yeah. to tell us a little bit about uh, that experience. First of all, what is there on Hawaii to hunt? Because uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, and then, you know, uh, how did that compare to other maybe more traditional style hunts you've been on? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we'll go from there. Yeah, no, the, the Hawaii one was a special one in that, you know, as you said, it's not a place you think uh, for a great destination hunt, but also when you're going to Hawaii, hunting is not the first thing you think of whatsoever. I mean, you're packing your board shorts and, you know, your appetite for some of that, uh, the great ups, the great sushi and whatnot. But we were on a, uh, an axis deer hunt. And for a lot of folks, I know axis deer is a little bit of a, an out there critter. Axis deer are globally known as chital or chital. They originate from the coast of India. There's a few in te- well, there's a bunch in Texas. Um, free range that escaped, uh, you know, people brought them over, oh, 120 years ago, the late 1800s, um, brought them over, penned them up, and now they're running free range. So there's, on Molokai alone, which is where we were hunting, there is estimated 70,000 deer on that island. So there are deer on Molokai, Lanai, and Maui, 100,000 total, 70,000 of those are on Molokai alone. 
there are places on that island that are barren simply from overgrazing. Um, I did the math. I'm working on that article right now, and that equates on Molokai, it equates to like 2.45, just under 2.5 deer per acre. I was just going to ask, do you know how big Molokai is, like like landmass? Yeah, uh, it, it, I forget the actual square miles. Again, I don't do well. It, it's 200, 261 square miles. So it is 10 miles wide by 38 miles long. So it's 38 miles sounds like a ways, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty small little island. Um, pretty small little island. So these deer are literally everywhere. They're on the side of the road dead from getting whacked by vehicles. Um, they are going to eat themselves out of house and home. And, and the best part, excuse me, about these deer is that from people who've had the meat, it is universally accepted that they are about the best wild game meat that you can get in North America. And, and I'll stand right up next to most people who've had it and say, it's as good or better than elk. They are called a deer, right? But they don't taste anything like a whitetail. I love hunting whitetails. Obviously, eat whitetail. Whitetail is not my favorite, not even close. Gaminess, even here in, you know, in Minnesota, um, a lot of, in the southern part of the state, they're all corn fed, right? right? They're not big timber deer. So the flavor's decent, but these axis deer are amazing. Absolutely that is, amazing. That is a bold statement, putting it on par with elk. Yep. But yep. I know you've got the experience to make that call, so I'll defer to you on it. Yeah, I'll do it and I'll stand by it. The, the bummer of it is that unlike an elk, uh, these axis deer, a mature buck away like 140 pounds. You know, they're, they're not very big. Uh, they're beautiful. They've, they've kind of, they've got usually a, a three prong horn and they kind of scoop back a little bit like an elk does not, doesn't look anything like a whitetail rack. Um, but their hides are, they're spotted like a whitetail fawn is, but they never lose it. Those spots stay throughout the, uh, throughout that deer's life. So um, it was a great hunt. We were there with Nosler and Leupold, um, shooting Nosler's new model 21 in six, five Creedmoor. Um, man, I tell you, it, it's a unique experience being, you know, out in the woods at the crack of dawn, uh, as the sun comes up to see 200 deer in front of you, just filing from where they're eating at night to where they're going to bed during the day. And then in the backdrop of that is the Pacific ocean. It's really cool. It's, yeah, it's that's, a really unique experience. That's that's got to be pretty gnarly, especially if you're maybe used to uh, like upper Midwest type hunts or Alaskan hunts or whatever. But to, yeah, to, to kind of be shooting against the, an ocean backdrop uh, is probably something totally different. So you, you real quick, you mentioned the population density. Is there a like a like this hunt or, or I don't know what they do on the island generally speaking, but is there like a population control element to it as well? They're trying, but I think most people agree they're not doing a very good job or said another way, they're not doing nearly enough. So there are a handful of uh, outfitters. Of course, land access is the biggest limiting factor. Um, there are a handful of outfitters who offer hunts uh, and a few guys are actually tied in with the USDA. And so the USDA will send out, uh, let's call them an inspector that goes with these guys and they'll, uh, they'll expect, inspect the deer on the hoof. They're usually shooting, shooting them at night, um, spotlighting them, get special permits for all that stuff. Um, and they'll harvest a pile of deer and then they'll go back to a USDA approved facility where they're, you know, pro broken down and processed and then USDA approved packaging. And if you go, uh, if you've been to the Hawaiian Islands, you've probably seen venison on a lot of the restaurant menus. Um, maybe so, spe so specific as to say Molokai venison, and that's where that deer's coming from. So, um, and, and again, because it, it is, it's such a, a, a universe, for those who've had it, it's such a universally appreciated meat. Um, it, the market for it is growing. The biggest problem, of course, they have is, geographics right getting mass amounts of processed venison from hawaii back to the mainland to make it more available and there's also i think a stigma right a lot of people would shy away from venison on a menu even if it's at a restaurant or what have you i think there's just that mental hurdle for a lot of folks who aren't used to it so or, or who maybe had it once or twice before and then had more of a gamey experience out of it yeah yeah yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's even axis deer with as good as it is, you can screw up, you can screw up beef, right? You can in the wrong hands or, or, or 
what have you, somebody could screw up a ribeye, which is hard to do, but it certainly can happen. Um, and the same with any sort of venison, but, uh, man, as you can tell, I, I never tire of talking about how good this venison is. It is, it is really special. How much did you come back with? We had, uh, I had a cooler shipped home. I think it was 130 quart cooler. I had four deer deboned and broken down in that cooler and then had it two day aired home. And of course, the way our world is right now, it was supposed to be here in two days. That's what we paid for was two day air. And then it showed up uh, five days later. I was, I went through all the stages of grief while that thing was lost between here and Molokai. Um, just, for some just, reason. just imagining opening a, uh, a cooler of rotten meat. Well, it just anything and everything, right? I think they're, they're selling the deer for the processed stuff for like eight bucks a pound. So let's say for easy math, let's say there's, you know, hundred pounds of meat. There was a little more than that, you know, $800 worth of meat in the cooler, the dollar amount, I honestly don't care about it. It was just wanting it here for, you know, the next 12 months. So it's pretty special to be able to pull that out of the freezer on Thanksgiving or what have you, and eat some, eat some venison from Molokai when it's seven degrees outside. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. That finally got here. And to finish the story, I suppose it was fine. We were fortunate enough to have, you know, it's warm there, obviously. So we had that stuff frozen when we put it in the cooler. And because there was so much of it, um, even for those five days in, in a good cooler, not a super high end cooler by any means, uh, it just kept itself cold. That amount, that mass of meat just kept itself cold. So it was good to go. We've already been feasting. All's well that it, that ends well, I suppose. So uh, let's dive a little more in the weeds on. So what, what was your kind of gear loadout for, for this hunt? Yep. Um, the way I equate it, you're almost thinking about how would you gear for a day on the water, but then put it in camouflage, super light pants to keep the sun off you. Um, a long sleeve tee with a hood in camouflage to keep the sun off you off the top. Uh, again, that, that, that rifle was Nosler's model 21. Um, you're going to forgive me. It's, it's been three or four months now, I think, since they, uh, they unleashed that beast. That's a pretty cool rifle chambered in six, five Creed. We were shooting nozzlers of 140 grain ballistic tips. And I'll circle back to that in a second. Cause bullet, um, what bullet you choose is in my opinion, always more important than whatever cartridge is stamped on the gun. Um, you know, what it says on stamped onto the barrel. So we were shooting those, uh, we had loophole optics on top with their uh, CDS, which is their custom dial system. Super awesome. Shoot, get your load worked up or pick any factory load, chrono it, give them specifics elevation for, for your general area. Are you hunting in Molokai where it's 85 degrees or are you hunting in Minnesota where it's, you know, 10 degrees in November. So temperature, give them those specifics send that to loophole. They custom etch you a dial, drop it on, and it's just range your deer at 430, dial up to 4.3 and you know, in MOA, of course, and, and just boom, you're, you're golden. So um, that's uh, it, it was a pretty, it was a pretty uh, hands-off system once it was set up. And that was a cool part because these deer had been shot at quite a bit. So we didn't know if you're going to encounter them at 50 yards and get lucky in some of the thicker stuff or some of the more wide open, smarter deer, older deer, you know, they're, they're skirting around where they think they're going to get shot at uh, 400 yards. So the shots can be out there a little ways. Um, so that was the main gear setup. Um, and then we, uh, we partnered with camp chef for this hunt as well. And those boys know how to take meat and turn it into food. Um, so we were, it was, it was pretty awesome, really awesome. But, uh, I want to circle back to that bullet thing, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. So yep. we, you know, we talked about kind of what equipment you were running for this hunt specifically, generally speaking, what factors kind of do you look at, you know, just like from the military side, it's like outfitting your team for a mission. You look at what your mission parameters are, what your objective is, what the battlefield looks like. Probably not a whole lot different in terms of the thought process for gearing out for a hunt. So what are some of your, your key factors? I mean, what do you look at when you decide, you know, kind of how to pack and, and what to sling with you? Yep, absolutely. Uh, key factors, let's start with the top. You know, you're looking at the optics and you can get by with a three to nine. And there's a reason that's the 30 out six of rifle scopes, right? It does everything. Um, but I would argue it doesn't do anything well. It's just, it does everything. It'll, it'll do whatever you want it to do. 
Um, but I like magnification and I like magnification a lot. So even though if I had to guess, I was prepping for an average shot to be 200 yards probably, which isn't far. Um, I still like a, a 15 to 18 power rifle scope. I mean, I, I, I like to dial in. I really do. I want something that'll go down to three. These were three to 18s, which were perfect. Um, that's important to me. That's personal preference, but that's important to me. Magnification. I want it there if I need it. Um, the rifle perspective, of course, is, um, you know, 95% of the time what I'm working with is a bolt gun. Uh, something, especially in this case, you got to look at the, the, the terrain in that it's dry there. Dry means dust. Dust means getting into everything and you need a rifle that you know um, has a reputable action that, that's not going to get all jammed up on you. And, you know, I'm talking about it feels a little trivial talking about not being able to shoot a deer when this kind of stuff, you know, matters to the boys, you know, when you're trying to save your own life, if you will. Um, but again, the concept is, is, is the same, right? You need to make sure the gun will function. And then, um, then it's that stamp on the barrel. And again, the six, five Creed is, as you know, taking off like crazy, everybody loves it. It's taken off like crazy. Um, I like to tell people that it was around for about a decade before people really started getting crazy about it. And, and they're like, no, I'm like, yeah, it, it sat idle for about a decade, but 12 years before people started going wild. And now of course that went from the ranges, the shooting ranges to the hunting side of things. And it's big enough to do uh, a lot of different things, but bullet selection is absolutely everything. And I touched before on that ballistic tip, what we were getting with a lot of these deer was total blow up of the shoulder, right? So general rule of thumb is, is to put, you want to anchor the animal as quickly as you can. doesn't matter where you are. Blood trails are fine if you leave a good blood trail, but putting the animal down, what that equates to sometimes is a loss of some shoulder meat. So we were taking those 140 grain ballistic tips and they did what a ballistic tip is supposed to do. It went just under the skin and it was a small explosion that takes out the shoulder of a 90 pound doe almost in its entirety. Um, we, there were six of us on the trip. We had, we were allowed to shoot, what did we shoot four deer, I think a buck and three does. And as you can imagine, not every shot goes perfectly like you want it to go. The people who had a little bit of a pulled shot, if you will, and were hitting them a bit far back, you know, in the gut, sometimes <laughs> those were the folks again, small deer, but actually who had the, the smallest amount of meat loss, All right? And you can say what you want about a gut shot and it's not ideal by any means. I don't want to give that impression, but um, those ballistic tips were doing what ballistic tips do. If it were up to me, Nosler also makes a 140 grain AccuBond and give me an AccuBond bullet and, and, you know, a 300 wind mag and you can almost kill about anything in the world. Um, personally, I would have taken that AccuBond, which is designed to drive a lot deeper and you'll have a hole going in, you'll have a hole going out and it's gonna bleed, right? It's gonna bleed. You put it in the shoulder, it's gonna break both shoulders and put them down. It is what it is. Um, but I like a hole in and I like a hole out. That's my personal preference. So, and- Is, is, that, is that because you get less meat loss or is that because you're not worried about, again, trying to reverse engineer everything into tactical terms, right? I think about- <laughs> I want intermediate barrier penetration, but then I want soft tissue expansion, uh, which is where, again, on like the concealed carry side, you see like one of these critical duty does so well. It's yep. barrier blind, but it has it expands when it has to expand. Absolutely. Uh, so where, where where does Acubon kind of fit in that spectrum in your experience? No, I totally agree. Expansion, and that's a great point. Expansion cannot be overlooked, obviously. Um, it is almost the, you know, you're talking about your Hornady critical defense. This is almost the AccuBonds are almost on the far side of that. You're going to get expansion, even in a thin skinned light deer, but it's going to go out the other side. Whereas on this side, you've got the ballistic tips, which we had a couple of pass throughs depending upon where they hit the animal, but they go in and they go boom, right? On the light skinned animals, it wasn't a bad choice. We didn't lose anything, but they were totally destroying meat. So on a hunt, my perspective is, is always meat loss. And that's a delicate dance, right? You want something that's kills efficiently, 
because that that is goal number one you shoot something somewhere it's an awful feeling it's awful for the animal but if you lose the animal you get zero meat which is way worse than losing one shoulder right but those acubons you know they're going to drive deep you're going to get a blood trail you're going to get expansion it's a little bit of everything does that make sense yeah no it does it it absolutely makes sense uh and you know like you said ideally you want to you know you want to anchor the animal uh, as soon as possible for a number of reasons yeah and that's i don't want to go down this rabbit hole and make it look like i'm crawling on a soapbox but one of my biggest pet peeves is you go to a deer camp somewhere i don't care if it's a hunting camp for the industry or if it's you know with grandpa and the uncles who've been doing this for 50 years and you know they stopped evolving sometime in 1978 but you get there and and they're like what are you shooting model 70 oh well, what are you shooting? They want to know if it's a 30 out six, if it's a, you know, a 270, is it a 280 AI? That's what I refer to, you know, that stamp on the barrel. None of that, to a certain degree, none of that really matters. You're not going to take a 22 long rifle and hunt Cape Buffalo, but so much more important is what that bullet is made of that you're chambering. Um, a story I like to tell a little bit, I went on a Plains game hunt a handful of years ago in South Africa, and I took a 270 Winchester in the Ruger, Chamber, uh, Ruger American, and I was shooting 150 grain Hornady interlocks. That's a simple cup and core bullet, right? Very, I mean, old school, very basic by today's standards. On one occasion, somebody had a rough shot with a 300 Win Mag, which again, if you're going by the, what are you shooting? I mean, that's, that's a lot of gun. And they were yeah. shot in Eland and on the shoulder of, of most ungulates being deer and elk, there's nothing that it actually, there's no bone that attaches, right? The shoulder is completely separate. It's just held on by tissue. And the, the bullet, the, the shot was at such an angle that it glanced off the rib cage and blew out through the shoulder without ever going in anywhere. And actually I finished it off, if that makes sense, right? I finished it off with a little 270 with a bullet that was designed to dig deep in a proper shot angle. So I say that to say, a 270 with the right bullet can take down a 2000 pound Eland in Africa. Um, it doesn't matter if you're hunting whitetails, whether you're shooting a 270 or a 30 out six or, you know, a seven millimeter, um, pick the right bullet for you in your application. And that's, that's so much more important. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, and so, so that's, that's, that's a good, that's a good dive into, into kind of the ballistics of it. You mentioned optics. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, having on the military side come from much more of a like a CQB oriented type background, uh, I've spent a little more time in the last few years trying to work on my on my long game on, on precision rifle stuff. And the thing I learned almost immediately is that there is so much more ancillary equipment above and beyond the rifle optic package, right? Uh, your kestrels and binos and spotting yeah. scopes and all that. So. You know, we've we've covered we've covered rifles and, and bullets. Mm. What else? What else? What else do you oh. look at bringing? Yeah, uh, shooting sticks. I am not a fan of shooting offhand, not at all. In fact, it, if there were two hundred inch white tail standing at a hundred yards, I I like to think I wouldn't take the shot in the heat of the battle. In the heat of the moment, what I I, I don't know, but. I, Shooting offhand, it's so easy to get into a routine of zeroing a rifle from the bench where you're sitting on a chair, you're, you're shooting off a concrete bench, you've got bags or a lead sled, whatever it is that you, uh, you use to zero and you think you're good. And, and the gun is good, um, but there's so much more as far as, you know, getting ready to make that shot and replicating real world situations. So I say all that to say I am not a fan of offhand and whether it's a tree or laying prone off a backpack or what have you support is mandatory always mandatory um and and that's that leads me to say shooting sticks is like the next thing outside of the rifle optics ammo combo that uh that matters and i'm a huge fan of the primos trigger sticks and what they are essentially is they have a bipod or a tripod um and they've got a trigger on them and i'm trying to think of something outside of the hunting world shooting world where this technology equates, but when you pull the trigger, instead of having to, let's say, unscrew a leg of a tripod and then tighten it like you would any camera tripod, right? You just lock it in, put it in or out. 
this trigger allows it to go up and down and you can hold that trigger and go from sitting all the way up to standing just by pulling that trigger and they, they slide in and out, right? Really cool piece of equipment. It's kind of dumb when you think about it. It's like 120 bucks for um, a, a, a shooting sticks, a bipod, but man, it is invaluable. And it doubles as a walking stick when you get old and fat like me. So um, that that's a huge piece of equipment. I also like to keep a decent pack, even though we were hunting, you know, we'd, we'd hunt out of a truck and we'd walk anywhere from a half mile to six miles in the morning, depending upon that type of hunt where we were, you know, so it's not a big day afoot and I'm not packing for a spike camp, but I'll have a backpack set up with some rain gear in it and, you know, camera gear and all that stuff, of course. But most importantly, I try to pack it with that rain gear is essential simply because that gives my pack some bulk. And I can whip that off if the grass is short or I'm over a rock. I can throw that down and use that to either shoot sitting, I can shoot prone, anything like that, just to give myself an additional rest. So um, that went with me. Another favorite of mine is um, it's a little piece of equipment called the VersaCarry Ammo Caddy. VersaCarry, they make some holsters and a bunch of different things like that. Uh, they're out of Texas, but they've got an ammo caddy. And what it is, is you can attach it to your belt. I want to think I had one on my desk here at the moment, but I don't. Um, there's a little Velcro piece, if you will, that attaches to your belt. So, you know, you, you carry generally in most bolt action rifles, it's four plus one. Um, God willing, it's going to take one. But every once in a while, things get Western, you know. And then I like to keep another five on my hip rather than, you know, dumping a box or, or shoving a box in the pack and trying to get that out when I need it that ammo management is, can be huge. Rarely is it needed, but when it's needed, it's pretty important. Um, and what it also you can do is there's another Velcro patch. You stick it right to the side of your rifle stock. So you could take that thing off your hip. You can put it right to the side of your rifle, rifle stock. I don't like that much weight on my rifle. It's super convenient. I don't like that weight on my rifle. I'd rather keep it on my hip, but there's also, you know, a lot of backpacks now taking a little, uh, the hunting side is taking a play out of the, the tactical sides playbook. There's a lot of Velcro on a lot of these packs. You can slap it to the back of your pack, wherever it's convenient. So, um, you know, stability, ammo management, um, those are the big ones. And quite frankly, I'm not the gear guy as far as I love to test it. I love to run it. But when I'm out moving around, I, I like to be somewhat of a minimalist, right? Just from a weight perspective, moving around and just uh, you know, just going as light as I can. Because God willing, there's going to be a quartered up deer in the back, you know, in the backpack too. So try to plan for that coming out. Yeah. And, and I, what little I do know, I know that there are packs that are designed with that in mind as well, specifically in terms of being able to haul a game out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one in particular, um, you know, Kuyu makes some really good packs. I'm a fan of mystery ranch. They got their, uh, maybe, you know, a bit of them. They were, they were new to me a handful of years ago. They cut their teeth on creating mission specific packs for drop uh, what's the phrase drop in firefighters the guys out west who are fighting the big fires yeah like smoke jumpers yeah smoke jumpers right yeah and, and i know they've done some stuff for specific uh for some of the seal guys i don't know how widespread that is for a few teams um but they create mission specific packs and, and they have expandable packs if you will that'll go from looking very tiny to being able to expand to carry a whole lot of meat and as a, excuse me, as a, a, a second advantage, you know, you need some sort of frame on there to carry that meat out. What that does too, is that gives your pack some rigidity. So you can, you know, for a lot of these shots, when you're sitting, find a high spot and you're glassing and you're covering a certain amount of area, um, you're sitting in those positions, you can stand that pack up. And because of the, the rigidity of that, you, know, you can use that as a pretty good rest too. It's actually really close to being the right height most of the time. Yeah, I've, I've taken a couple of, of precision rifle uh, courses at this point. Again, some of them being more military focused, but talking about bracing off of stuff and, and whether it's the tripod or spotting scope and you hook one arm through it and kind of run it like you might run like a VTAC barricade or dropping a plate or sitting cross-legged on the ground with a pack in between and whether you hug it or you squeeze it with your with your thighs, kind of holding a pack upright using that like a, you know, almost like an ad hoc bench rest. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned those courses because I think a lot of that is lost on a lot of shooters just because the marketing is bad. And what I mean by that is 
those long range courses of whatever organization are so good at prepping, you know, for, for the hunter, if you will, for those longer range shots and goofy positions off of rocks or offhand or none of that in the PRS, of course, but you know what I mean? And same with is out there a little bit, but like the, the IDPA, right? How, how good the skills are that you develop for those competitions um, are for like the concealed carry guy, right? Just, I think those lines are blurred a little bit and I know that's a bit of a rabbit hole, but uh, just random thought. No, I think you're right. I think that they're, um, for whatever reason, you know, the folks who run these courses, they market them a specific way and whether that's to, you know, maximize attendance or because they're targeting a certain demographic. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, that we see a lot of that on the training side where, there are skills that are valuable outside of, of what it's marketed for. And actually I, I did a, I did an episode of, of this podcast a few weeks ago with Dave Merrill talking more about active shooter response and, and uh, hmm. EDC and, and CCW, but we kind of had a similar conversation. And one of the things I brought up was like, so like CQB courses, you know, where you're actually going through doors and clearing rooms. And, you know, I think that sometimes painting with a broad brush to say that that the marketing uh you know kind of limits what demographic it attracts but you know i would argue like a cqb course i, I think an entry-level cqb room clearing type course um you know is ideal for just about anybody because even if you don't even if you're never in a job or a situation where you're clearing rooms with a gun um, you're still learning a, a very specific set of like visual processing skills. Sure. You know, and so I think a lot of people look at those kinds of courses and they go, well, you know, I'm not on a SWAT team. I'm not a SEAL. I'm not going to kick in a door and clear a room. So that course isn't for me. But in the process, they lose out on an opportunity to develop, um, like I said, like a visual processing skill set uh, that's very methodical and, and very thorough. And I would argue, especially on the long range side, like I said, I've taken a few courses that were very, very specifically oriented towards um, like military and LE snipers. But there's plenty of things that you learn, again, talking about like unconventional positions and things like that, which is a yeah. huge one uh, for like military snipers uh, that I think would be equally applicable on the hunting side. Agreed. And that's that's something I would like to see rub off from the tactical side and more on the hunting side is the training and the competition and maybe that's the problem right there the word competition right i'm, I'm when i shoot I, I i don't want it to be competitive right i i want to train at the range or i want to shoot at the range for a specific goal of hunting here hunting there or to improve my uh um uh, draw time you know uh, pulling the ccw gun whatever it is the word competition kind of scares me but at the same time, like you said, there's so much you can pull from that. And if you think the deer camp, man, is that, that guy's an, that guy's a way better hunter than that guy. Well, what does that mean? That is such an arbitrary term. He's better. Does it mean he can read tracks better? Does it mean he shoots better? Does it mean he can hold himself together better uh, under the stress or the buck fever when the shot comes? I mean, I, I don't know what that means exactly. And I think that is where some of that gets lost. It, it, not that everything needs to be measured, but I think a way for us as shooters, whether that's the hunting side or the tactical side to be able to measure ourselves. I think that's what the training does, right? It's not a competition necessarily against guy X, Y, Z. It's, it's us, our current skill set and where that skill set potentially could be. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I, I think that um, we have a habit of sort of putting ourselves into boxes based on what is the end application. Yeah. Oh, well, if you're a hunter, you don't need these courses over here, but that doesn't mean that there's no benefit to them for you. You know, likewise, I, you know, there's, I know that over recent years, there's been a lot of like SOCOM level units that have started sending guys on like professional hunts because there is a, there's a tracking component. There's a, you know, there's a marksmanship component. There's a field craft component to those things um, that absolutely do translate. And I would agree that that's a, that's a two-way street. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, it's I've seen I, I've seen some of the best shooters um, from our industry who you know have been with on some of these hunts. You know, I know again the way a lot of these hunts works. A company has a new gun or something. Um, 
you know, they want to get it in our hands and they want to field test it. That's what we're doing. So that draws lots of different folks in the industry from lots of different walks of life, walks of life. And I've seen some, some guys who I know are phenomenal shooters who have won some serious awards in their specific discipline, totally fall apart when it comes time to pull the trigger on a living, breathing deer elk, pick your target, right? It's, it's a huge part of it too. You know, again, in our world, we call it buck fever, but you can't manage it. What's that, you know, what's that say for the guy who, for me, what does that say? I mean, it's, it's something that I feel like I've got in control of. Now, after I take that shot, then I fall apart because I'm totally wondering, did he, was it a good hit? If the deer runs off or whatever, was it a good hit? That's where my emotions start to, to really kick in. But, you know, I, I like to think because I've been in those experiences hunting so much, good, the bad and the ugly. If I ever have to use my sidearm in self-defense, you know, I'll be able to, you know, function as I need to function both mentally and physically when that time comes. Right. And I think they're that place to that crossover skill and, and mindset you're talking about. Yeah. And, and on, on the mill side, you know, we, uh, I've always heard it referred to as stress inoculation, you know, we're <laughs> going to give you practice stress so that when you get to the real stress, you know, you have some, some mental and, and kind of like sure. biophysical, uh, you know, types of processes that are in place to help you manage that. Uh, because again, regardless of what the end application is there, um, you know, shooting under stress is stressful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, so we, we talked a little bit about earlier uh, about something I said, I was, I was going to circle back on and that's sort of, um, the, the human interest side, um, of firearms and of some of the features that you guys have done in the past and, and the Nick on the stock, as you call it. And I know for me personally, um, I would say that for the longest time, I did not collect guns. I acquired them to fill a capability gap in my safe. Yeah. Right. As I start to, as I develop a new skill, be it precision mm -hmm. shooting. Oh, I don't have a thousand yard gun. Well, I should pick one up so that I can train to hone that skill set. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of been my approach to a lot of things. And, and I'll say in the last uh, year, two years uh and maybe it was from sitting on my ass during covid and, and staring at the ceiling too much but um i've started to take up more of an interest in what i would what, what we what's commonly referred to as cloning so either purchasing or building weapons that replicate those that i carried on duty whether it was active duty military time or my time as a contractor or whatever um, and, and we're working on some stuff on the recoil side. We have already, and we'll probably be doing some more stuff in that vein. Uh, and the more vets I talk to, the more that that sort of aspect of, of their shooting life post-military, uh, it's, it seems to be a, a, a topic that really resonates. And so again, talking about crossover, I think for, for those that grew up hunting or shooting with their uncles or their father or their grandfather and they you know that they have that first rifle that you know they maybe have carried with them or or that they've had in their safe their entire lives you know on the, the quote-unquote tactical side those of us we, we want to have a historical reference or or an emotional connection to you know something that we used uh on on our active duty side so I guess I would, I guess I would ask you, um, I don't, I know you guys don't dabble a whole lot on the, on the tactical and the lifestyle end of it, but in terms of the human interest, uh, side of things and that sort of emotional uh, connection to firearms, which is, I think something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough, I agree. Um, you know, what, uh, I don't, I don't know, I guess what, uh, you know, what do you have in your safe that that's got a, an emotional connection for you and, and what kind of stuff have you guys done on the gun digest side to, to sort of talk about those issues? Yeah. Um, it's telling the gun story, right? Whether that's the historical story of the gun model as a model, or if it's a specific firearm, meaning, well, the 1873 I was talking about, you know, briefly with that Yellowstone, that, that's a very storied firearm. Um, it, it's, it played such a huge role in so many different um, scenarios across the West, right? But then you've got a specific gun, meaning the gun that, the gun that, that was with me when I shot my first deer with my grandpa, I bet means as much as to you. The equivalent would be the, the gun that you carried, the firearms that you carried your first time on your first 
tour, right? If that's a decent way to say it. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's 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 a gun you share experience with based upon, or, or a gun that you have an emotional connection with based upon some shared experience, whether, again, it's on a foreign country uh, ser- serving or if it's on the back 40 hunting with grandpa. Um, and that's what I try to capture. As you can tell, I'm trying to say it now, it never really comes out cleanly, right? It's one of those things that's challenging to take those feelings and put them into words. And I think for guys like you and me, this is an easy conversation to have because we love guns. Um, but for people who aren't as enthralled, um, even if they're weekend warriors, right, who don't appreciate firearms, if that's a way to say it, to the level that we do, just trying to talk about that emotional connection is is almost impossible. Um, but that's the goal. That's trying to capture it. Like I said, either historically or telling those stories early on, I talked about that little model Winchester 61. It's just a simple little pump action 22. And, and I don't know that anybody else could shoot it well because that front bead is, is crooked and I've got to hold it just in the right spot of the V site in the back to, you know, to, to hit accurately. Um, and it's pitted a little bit, but it's, it's magical to me. Um, and there are a couple of others. I've got a, a brand new gun. It's a, it's a Mossberg Bantam um, 410 that my daughter three years ago shot her first turkey with. I don't know what that gun's worth, probably like 300 bucks. I'd never sell it. I wouldn't sell it for 10 grand just because that, you know, someday that'll go back to her. That's one of the most valuable guns in my safe simply because of the emotional connection price tag wise, not so valuable. It's not even, it's not even pretty, but (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it means as much to me as any of the other ones in there. Um, so that's, that's what I love to talk about. And to your point, it's, it's, I think underutilized and some people appreciate it. Some people don't, but it yeah. is what it is. No, I agree. And, and I can remember, I can remember some points in, in not so distant history um, where sort of the, the gun community as a whole uh, has been ridiculed for a lack of a better term, you know, I don't know if you remember when, when the whole like hashtag ammo sexual thing came out and there was this sort of idea that, you know, people were, uh, you know, are in love with, with guns as a, as a mechanical object. And I, you know, that is a, I would argue that's maybe a perversion of the point, um, that it, you know, that, that it's, it's not, it doesn't matter if it's a gun or a car or, a watch yeah. or anything else. Um, but it's what it is. is it's an, it's a memory that that brings back when you, when you pull it out of the safe, when you clean it, when you go shoot it, it, it there's this whole host of things that come back. And again, I would argue it, uh, you know, it's one-to-one whether we're talking about, you know, the, the gun you took your first, you know, deer with, or your first Turkey with in your daughter's case, or, you know, the, the gun I carried on my first deployment overseas, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not the gun itself. That wouldn't matter if it was a staple gun, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, the memories that all come back with that. And it's, it's a a tangible physical way to, to feel connected, um, to something in your past that, you know, that resonates with you. Oh, that's a great way to say it. And that's to your point that amosexual, I don't recall hearing that, but the people pointing that finger are right. I mean, we are infatuated with them, but not from like the destructive perspective that I think a lot of people feel like we are. And let me see if I can make a point to same with, I've got a a bunch of different mounts in my house and, and a friend of mine who is not a shooter, not a hunter. It's like, what is it with, with all this actually asked me genuinely. And he, he was very curious um, what is it with all this? Cause he's like, this dead stuff is weird. I said, you have any pictures of your, your wife and your kids at home? And like, you know, yeah. And I said, well, when you look at that, you, you think of certain things, right? It makes you feel certain things. You know, you love the wife, memories of the kids, whatever it is. I, that's exactly what it is for me with either a gun, um, some special guns or, or that mount. When I look at that, I don't, I don't see like, yeah, I conquered that animal. It's, I remember, you know, something grandpa whispered to me right before, you know, an hour before we saw that deer or, and that's, that's what really matters. And that's, I think why you and I both do what we do, right. It's that emotional, oftentimes intangible feeling. You're just chasing that and guns bring that to us in in different ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then from the hunting side, you know, I've, I've heard the phrase horn porn thrown around a couple times to talk about stuff like that. And yeah. again, it's I, I, I would argue, likewise, it is a, a perversion of the point. And you make a great statement about, you know, it's not that I conquered this other living creature. Like, eh, it's about everything else that happened around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I actually get the same feeling in... I'll get the same feeling looking at those antlers that are in my son's room from that axis deer in Hawaii. Um, I'll get the same feelings and memories of Hawaii looking at those antlers as I will in a month when I go and pull a roast out of the freezer, you know, and throw it in a crock pot and cook it and feed my family with it. It's a different manifestation of those same feelings. I mean, it all kind of comes, I don't want to say full circle, but that, that is so cliche. You know I was going mean. to say cue, cue the circle of life song. Cue right? the circle of life song. Yeah. 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 Right. So, well, that's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit down and uh, shoot the breeze with me. Uh, once again, thank you all for tuning in. This has been recoil live presented by FN and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks everybody. <laughs>